Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we are so blessed to know that you have compassion on your children. As a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on us. Lord, you know we're made of dust. We are weak, we are finite, we are fallible, and oftentimes we're foolish. We thank you that you've placed your love on us in Christ. We thank you that you show yourself strong on behalf of those who are weak. And we pray that your word would send forth the power of your spirit in working in hearts, each one of our hearts, Lord. Encourage us through your word today as we think of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I have a question for you. You don't have to answer out loud, but here's the question. When it comes to being a witness for Christ, would you say that you have blown it at least once, twice, numerous times? Have you ever found yourself unable to find a verse when you're in a conversation with someone about spiritual matters and a gospel conversation and you're trying to tell them uh, here's a particular point you need to consider, and you're like, well, if you have an old book, which I've done in the past, you're sort of looking through, you can't seem to find it, and you have no ammo to, to give a, a rebuttal and to the person's false premise that they're deceived to believe. Or maybe you've lost your cool around unbelievers. That's not a very comfortable position to be in. When you've said some things that later on, mm, deeply regret or have you, like me, at times had opportunities for gospel conversations, but you chose to remain silent for whatever reason? I wonder if you ever feel frustrated when you've been attempting to engage in a gospel conversation with someone, and then there's this interruption that cuts off that conversation, and boom, it's over. And you felt like, wow, that is really frustrating. Ever feel inadequate as a witness for Christ? I know I do at times. Ever feel disappointed by the level of resistance that you encounter from people who are very determined to repeatedly dismiss the Bible without ever having really investigated it or even read it? Well, if you've answered yes in your heart to any or a number of those kinds of questions, this sermon is for you. You're not alone. There have been well-known, effective gospel witnesses who deal with failure, who deal with frustration, just like you and me. And the one we're going to consider this morning is Apostle Paul, one of the greatest missionaries and evangelists that has walked on this earth. And we're going to read about him and others like him in the scriptures who mess up. They weren't perfect. And there were times when they got discouraged. There were times when they caved in to fear. And uh, such uh, assumptions that we have about them, sometimes we put them on a pedestal think, oh, they never must have faced that. No, the fact is they did face those kinds of issues and what we're looking at this morning is the fact that Paul, as a faithful, committed gospel witness, 
he did become discouraged, and I believe there were times he was afraid. I think there were, obviously we'll see today he failed in very obvious ways as well. But they, again, it's a reminder that we all together are fallible, finite people who become discouraged and who drop the ball when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. So if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Acts 23, 23rd chapter of Acts. It's in page 1329 in your pew Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, please look along and follow along or get on your tablet or turn your phone off in every other way, but you can look on your phone if that's where your Bible is. Acts 23, first 11 verses, and we read. Again, this is picking up from the previous chapter where Paul has already uh, seen sort of a mini-riot occur because of some accusations brought against him by some folks there in Jerusalem, and so he has sought to get their attention to try to clarify what's going on, and now he's been placed before the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. Uh, in this translation, it's called the Council. Verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the Council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, by the way, this is not the Ananias of the Gospels. This is another gentleman who is, well, he was known to be quite corrupt. Um, Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, <clears throat> I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in, in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembled was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, not an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue, heatedly saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid, that's the Roman commander, uh, Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And if you don't have verse 11 underlined in your Bible or highlighted, let me encourage you to do that. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Again, we have Paul here making his case to this group of Jewish religious leaders, again called the Sanhedrins, normally considered a group of 71 of them, rabbis. Some are, many of, most of the majority of them are liberal in their orientation. And those are the Sadducees. They, they, don't, they discount any kind of resurrection. Uh, then there's the more conservative group, 
the Pharisees, of which Paul used to be a member at one time in his life. But here Paul gets off on the wrong foot right at the beginning. Did you catch that? He spoke about living with his conscience good all of his life, which I think what he means is that he earnestly sought to follow the law, I think is what he's trying to say. And the high priest again responds with this claim to have him punched in the mouth. And so Paul, uh, you know, gives him this really kind words, you know. He says, uh, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, what's he, what does he mean by whitewashed wall? That, do you call people that? I don't call people that. Uh, a whitewashed wall is another way of saying you're a hypocrite. In other words, a cheaply constructed wall, you make it painted, look, paint it nice and nice and white, but it's really rickety, it's about ready to fall over. And so what he's saying is you're a big hypocrite. And uh, it doesn't sound like words that are seasoned with grace, does it, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. So here he's immediately rebuked soon after that, and he's quick to back down, which is another great thing, of course, here, that he realizes, ooh, I, I really overreacted there, I got angry. And so he admits it's not appropriate to revile the high priest, which means to abuse him or accuse him or, or uh, speak to him in a, in a very uh, inappropriate way. Because he was the person that God, that was a God-ordained position that he held, even though he wasn't a very godly man. The point here as we start off here is to notice that all of God's children, all of Jesus' followers, we drop the ball, don't we? in our attempt to serve as gospel witnesses. All of us commit errors, playing, if you will, our positions on the field of Christian witness. We drop the ball. It comes to us and boom, you know, it just slips by us. Uh, Peter, you recall, denied his Savior not once, not twice, three times. And it was Jonah who was commissioned to be a witness for the sake of God and the offering of the good news of repentance that he could preach to them. And uh, Jonah, what? Refuses to even go to the people that God is commissioning to go to, goes in the opposite direction, and is hoping and praying that God would give them the full vent of his judgment and wrath. Whew, what a pitiful witness he was. The point is, let's face it, all gospel witnesses have failed at some point and in some ways. So Paul then, in this attempt here again, shows this idea of realizing he's failed. He was angry. He was just gave a response that came just out, blurted right out. Maybe you've done that a number of times. Like, you know me, you just say something, you're like, oh, what did I just say? It just comes out so quickly. So then Paul says, all right, let's get the attention off of myself. And I'm going to stake this statement about uh, my background, and he said it in such a way, looking back on it later, by the way, in Acts 24, the next chapter, as he's again accounting more about his ministry, he realizes, looking back, that wasn't a good thing to say. So he talks about this idea about the resurrection, and that's why I'm in such trouble. But he knew full well, when he, bring that topic, when he brought that topic up, that that was going to cause all sorts of sparks to fly with these two groups that he knew did not see eye to eye. It was like throwing a lit match onto a pile of sticks that were soaked in kerosene. Here it goes. He threw it out there about the resurrection from the dead. And what do you read? Verse 7, division. Verse 9, leading to a great uproar. Verse 
Uh, nine, heated arguing. And in verse 10 says, there's great dissension. It sounds almost like another mini riot among the leaders now in this Sanhedrin, this council. So here's Paul again thinking, what have I said? Look at this place. It's now out of control. And then here comes the Roman, uh, the Roman leader there, the Roman guy in charge. And he's like, he was trying to find answers as to why we just have a mini right with this guy. And now he's seeing another one unfold. And so he pulls him out of there so that Paul wouldn't get another beating, another violent outburst. And what do, what do we see here? Another opportunity to witness by Paul has been hijacked. And so his life is in danger once again. Now at this point, you have to sort of stop and ask yourself, what's going on in Paul? What is God's point here in terms of where he's taking this narrative? Where is Luke pointing us to? And it seems to me it all comes down to verse 11 here, very clearly leading to a moment in which I believe Paul at that particular time became very discouraged. His plan for gospel witness among his fellow Jews, he has been anticipating, oh, I just have such a hard burden for these folks. I've been where they are. And it says in verse 1, he stared at them, which I think he means he's looking at some of these faces of people that he may have known years ago. His heart longs for them to know the Jesus Messiah that he knows, who's, who has changed his life. And as he looks at them and seeks to have a gospel witness to them, guess what? Once again, it ended up like a train wreck. His opening comments to bring the gospel witness among his Jewish peers was polluted with all sorts of disrespect and sinful anger. And in his heart, I believe he began to crumble under this weight that he's now carrying, the weight of his failure and the weight of his frustration. It's just weighing him down. You ever been there? Do you know what it's like to feel like, man, I messed that up, or I'm, your, or I'm so frustrated I can't seem to get my uh, situated to get that word in there to help these folks see the truth? You ever feel like the attempts that we have to deliver gospel witness end up in the breakdown lane? You ever feel like your attempts to deliver the gospel witness end up you're swerving and next thing you know you're off the road and you're out in the weeds, the weeds of discouragement and disappointment? Well, that's where Paul found himself. And at this point, I am so convinced that what is found in verse 11 and following is really vital for us to understand. This is, this is a text of encouragement for those of us who can understand what it is to fail. Understand what it is to feel frustrated. There is encouragement to be found in this text. And who is the encourager? It is Jesus himself. Let's consider now, in light of that, that the living Christ here in this text provides three forms of encouragement. Number one, the presence and personal involvement of the Lord Jesus Christ. The presence and personal involvement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Paul's 
discouragement was greeted with Jesus' encouragement. Jesus stands right beside him. Jesus speaks to him, offering him words of reassurance. What a difference. What a difference it makes if you know that Jesus is standing beside you, encouraging you, reassuring you, saying to you, take courage. When I was in high school, I did a foolish thing one year, and I tried out for the tennis team. I wasn't very good, but I thought, why not? So I tried out, and part of the tryout is you have to play a number of matches with different people, and if you win those matches or do well, then it's likely you're going to make the team. So guess who I played the first match I'm trying to make the tennis team? It ended up being a guy by the name of Dart Meadows. I'll never forget his name. He was a classmate of mine, and uh, he happened to be ranked in the top 10, not in our in our region, the top 10 in the state. And so I'm playing him in tennis, and I'm thinking, oh, this is a waste of time. And so I'm playing the game, and he whooped me. Uh, I mean, I'm just serving the ball. Next thing I know, it's, it comes right past me on his one return. It goes that way. I'm like, I'm just watching the ball. And his serves were acing me. I mean, it was just, the guy was very good. And I thought to myself, and looking back on that, what would have happened if I had said, hey, you get yourself a player. Let's play doubles and see what happens. And imagine if he picked somebody else in our school, you know, whatever the best player he could find. But imagine if I had the privilege and somehow the connections so that I could have invited to play along with me someone like Roger Federer, who happens to be, by the way, if you're not in tennis, he's like one of the greatest tennis players ever. Imagine if he plays on my team. I would just say, you got it, you got it, he's got it, and I'd just let him play. I mean, he would just wipe everybody out. It would be an incredible difference. Well, that's sort of the image I have here in my mind about taking me from a position of being discouraged, dealing with things on my own and knowing I'm going to fail, to realizing I've got somebody helping me, and the discouragement is not going to hold me back. It actually is going to evaporate in an instant. Here's Jesus drawing near, personally urging Paul to stay strong. It's as if he's saying to Paul, Paul, cheer up. Cheer up. Don't give up, he's saying. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you when you fail. I'm here to cheer you on. I'm here to urge you to carry on when you're tempted to give up. And if you ever want to do an interesting study at some point later, not now, okay, I don't want to see anybody looking up stuff now on your phone and stuff, but later, look up the text I gave you in your notes of other instances in which the same word about take courage or cheer up are used when Jesus speaks into the lives of people who are basically helpless or who are despairing or who think there is no hope for them. And Jesus speaks those words into their lives. What is Jesus saying into your life today? Cheer up. Take courage. Is he reminding you, he says, take heart. My death on that cross demonstrated the depth of my love for you that will never be withdrawn from you. Is he not saying, take heart. My death on the cross provides 
cleansing from all of your sins and all of your failings and all of your foolishness that you've done and continue to do. My resurrection confirmed that I now view you as someone who is well-pleasing in my sight because of what I've done in your place. You have my righteousness. Take heart. Be encouraged. Because I'm here as a living Christ, raised from the dead, therefore I continue to intercede for you. I continue to be a person who is empowering you. I've given you my Holy Spirit. He's at work in you. And you're not on your own. And I'm committed to transforming you. Even through your failings. There's a reason and purpose I have even for those. Jesus says, I am with you to help you in your struggles. The struggles that you face and I face with selfishness, the struggles we face with pride, the struggles we, we face with anger, the struggles we, we face with the fear of man. He says, I'm going to help you with those things. Actually, I'm the only one who can help you overcome those areas of life. It's not by accident that Jesus said when he commissioned his gospel witnesses, his, his disciples, his apostles, when he said, listen, go and make disciples of all nations. What does he say? It's part of that commissioning. Behold, or look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That means that Jesus is always with you, every day, in every situation of life. And may I remind you also, if you look at Luke 12, I won't take the time to read all that, but he reminds us of the help the Holy Spirit promises. He says, when you're brought into a situation where you don't know what to say, and they're saying, you've got to bear witness to me in that situation, it looks dangerous, the Holy Spirit's going to help you know what to say at that time. My friend, there's encouragement in knowing that Jesus is with his people in their attempts and their failings and frustrations in gospel witness. You see, because of the gospel, we can find encouragement knowing that when we fail as witnesses, Jesus does not abandon us. He does not throw us to the curb. He does not give up on us and say, eh, you blew it. That's it for you. No, he still loves us and he remains with us to help us and to continually encourage us not to give up. That's what the gospel says to us. I hope you have the ears to hear it, because we need to hear it. That's good news. Secondly, notice in this text in verse 11, as Jesus comes alongside of Paul and says to him, as, For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. I understand this to mean, as a second form of encouragement, the promise of Jesus Christ is given to Paul here. Because Jesus is not only affirming the fact that he knows everything that Paul has been doing, he says, look, I know what you've been doing here, Jerusalem. I'm aware of that. And he also, which of course includes the fact that Paul has failed in certain ways, but he also has sought to be persistent and to uh, keep going despite the frustrations. But you'll notice that Jesus says, listen, nothing has escaped my notice. I'm aware of what you're dealing with here. And Jesus sees our weaknesses, and he also notes the occasions in which we have sought to be faithful. 
Some of us live in difficult situations. Some of us have an unsafe spouse that we are very much being watched day after day and how we conduct ourselves. And, and that's not an easy thing sometimes when they see us at our worst. Some of us know that we have many other challenges, and yet he knows that. And one of the dangers, it seems to me, that when we are very much aware of our failings, when we know we've said something, we really got off on the wrong foot, we blew it, is that we let those opportunities that we have had to witness for Christ somehow have really been dropped by us, is that Satan loves, oh, he loves to come and harass us and to hound us with guilt and shame. Oh, he loves to just keep playing that over and over before us, pointing out our deficiencies. And according to Revelation 12, that's what his, one of his chief characteristics is to be the accuser. He loves to convince us that because we screwed up once, you may as well not try anymore. But Jesus deals with his disciples, my friend, in grace. And that's what this text is showing us. Jesus promises Paul that there will definitely be more opportunities in your future, Paul, for gospel witness, including one of the greatest longings he's had is to finally be in the capital city of the Roman Empire, Rome itself. Now, because of the gospel of grace, my friend, we are given second chances. Praise God. We are given more opportunities to serve Christ and his kingdom even, even after we have messed up time and time again. There's more to do in the kingdom to be a gospel witness for people who struggle with anger. There's forgiveness for them. With people who have bad attitudes and who have mouths that they can't seem to control very well. Thank God he can still forgive us and still use us. People, uh, there are opportunities to serve Christ and to bear witness for Christ with people who struggle with fear, fear of man. And Jesus has more for you and for me to do with future opportunities to share Christ with people that we have no idea who that will include because we don't know what the future is. We don't know where God is going to lead us. We don't know what kind of connections we're going to make with somebody down the road. But there's more for all of us who are in the kingdom. There's more for us to do in making known Christ, even after our failings pile up. You see, if you've, been, if you've failed to be a gospel witness years ago, and those opportunities when you had a kid that was still in formative age, or maybe you're sensing right now that that's an area you've seemed to drop the ball a number of times. My friend, whether it's been last week or whether it was years ago, the point is this. God can still use you. Your witness is not totally negated because of that. Matter of fact, you can be a gospel witness when you confess your sins to your children. <laughs> That's a powerful gospel witness when you ask them to forgive you. You can be a gospel witness now to your grown kids. You can be a gospel witness now to your grandkids. You can be a gospel witness to some fatherless child through Long Island Youth Mentoring and invest in that child who's never had a father to tell them that they love them, that they're significant, and that they're valued. You see, if you're seeking to witness to that unsafe spouse of yours, you say, well, I've blown it so many times before them, that does not negate the fact that you can even now point them to Christ, because that's what it's all about, grace anyway, right? 
Maybe some of us have had a lifestyle. The lifestyle we had during our young adult years was compromised. It was times in which we dishonored Christ. And looking back, may I just remind you that Jesus can forgive you. Jesus can use you. Jesus can actually take you from all of your failings and all of the foolishness of your past. And he can now say, listen, I can take you and make you into someone who has gained from those moments of, of uh, rebellion and of uh, heading in the wrong direction. And he said, I can make you and now someone who can use that as a means to witness by promoting the grace of Christ and talking about how God takes people whose lives are messed up and make them into something that's totally new. Think about it. Moses spent the middle 40 years of his life, right? First 40, then 40 here in the middle, and then there's another 40. Those middle years, after a big failing that happened at the end of the first 40, Moses spent those years in the wilderness learning what? Learning lessons about the grace of God. Because God then, after those 40 years of learning to be humbled and to know the grace of God, took him at the last 30, 40 years of his life and said, now I'm going to commission you. You be my witness and you say what I want you to say and lead the people according to my use of you in the future for his generation. Again, I've already noted Peter is one who has failed and whose record of his failure is so clearly on the pages of the Gospels. And yet it's Peter who what? Who was preaching on the day of Pentecost? That should remind us that God uses people who fail and he gives them another opportunity. He is the God of grace. Don't doubt the promises of God, my friend. Just like Paul had to hear it, we need to hear it. You see, Jesus chooses to use ordinary, imperfect people to share his extraordinary grace, gospel of grace, with those who need to know him. Well, the third point I want to make here uh, this morning has to do with what comes next. And what comes next is nothing more than just astounding. It really is amazing um, in terms of the twists and turns in this story. Um, <clears throat> look at verse 12 in chapter 23 of Acts. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy or a mob and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. This is something that Paul doesn't know about. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. For we And we are part, our part, for, and we for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But, verse 16, I love this, the son of Paul's sister. Who is this guy? Didn't he have a name? Well, it's not, it's not recorded. The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, and Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called him, me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to report to me? 
And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him, who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now, you're going, and now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. Therefore, the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor, and on and on it goes. Now, as you read that text, does that encourage your heart? I find that to be, again, the third form of encouragement here, which is the providential care of the Lord Jesus Christ, shown so clearly here in this text. There's no way Paul had any way of knowing what was going on with this plot. And yet it just so happened, not, by the Lord's gracious, sovereign plan, Paul's nephew makes this conspiracy known, telling the authorities, and has connection there with Paul, and it all works out so that these things come to light, and the Romans react in a very amazing way, and they're taking their very best efforts to put Paul under top security. We are talking hundreds of guards to protect this guy. Because why? Because God is determined to get Paul to Rome. <laughs> and so this is not the time for him to die. One author, in commenting on this text, one commentator said this, this is in your notes, God's servants are immortal until their work is done. No servant of God dies a premature death. My friend, that is a freeing thought. That is a liberating form of encouragement to be a gospel witness and to just live your life, take risks. It's also a reminder that God has his own sovereign hand leading and guiding him so that what's happening in your life is not by accident. There is a reason for those things. So the people who live beside you are there because of the sovereign hand of God. It is the person who shares a locker right beside you. That person is located there because of the sovereign hand of God. The transfer that you got at work when you didn't want to be transferred at work, is done because of what? It's a divine assignment from Almighty God. And the new folks who moved in down the block or moved in upstairs at your apartment complex or wherever you happen to live, they are there because of the providential design of God. You can be confident that God can use you, He can use me as His witnesses no matter where the path of life may lead you. Don't doubt it, my friends. You're, you, as a servant of God, are immortal until your work, until the work that God has for you is done. May I remind you the gospel witness Job. What does he say after all of his things that happened in his life that, again, very difficult to understand all the whys and wherefores. At the end of the, of the book, he says in chapter 42, verse 1, he says, Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Nobody's going to hijack your plan, God. And so you can be confident that when there are frustrations and interruptions and things that happen that you think, oh, I didn't see that coming. Rest assured, God has a plan and he's in control. Let's be encouraged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've had occasion today to be reminded that we, as followers of Christ, we fail. We're not perfect people. And we are a part of a family of God made up of imperfect people. So Lord, thank you for reminding us today that you are with us, even in our failings, that you can use us despite our failings, and that, Lord, we can be encouraged to know that you are determined to not give up on us and to help us continue to be faithful in being gospel witnesses. Lord, may you take these forms of encouragement that were given to the Apostle Paul when he was down and discouraged and really had just recently messed up big time, may, Lord, we hear what you had to say to him. May it land in our hearts in such a way to encourage us as well. And, Lord, if there's someone here today who needs to hear the gospel witness themselves, they might need to be reminded that Jesus doesn't save perfect people. He saves sinners who are selfish, who are rebellious, who are oftentimes rude and unloving and who blow it big time. But Lord, we thank you that you died for people like that, people like us, and that through Jesus Christ, we can have new life and full forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Lord, I pray that you would give us greater boldness, greater encouragement of heart, to be gospel witnesses because, Lord, we're celebrating, as we do so, we're celebrating your grace. (laughs) We're celebrating your mercy shown to us. We are beggars who are merely telling other people where they can find bread because we have found the amazing good news through Christ, through your Holy Spirit, through some other witness that came and shared Christ with us. Use us, we pray, to bring that good news to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we sing our last worship song together this morning. And the chorus just goes simply.